What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. Why am I so excited? Well, at the time of this recording, we have only three more sleeps till Christmas. And that really got our juices flowing here at the Midnight Myth because our son is almost two. So he's really kind of starting to understand how to watch things like TV and movies. He has favorite things, things that he likes, things that he's like, okay. Also things that he's not into. And we've been showing him all sorts of Christmas-themed movies Everything that we can think of that we think he might like, we have shown him. So we're in this deep, deep, deepness of Christmas movie watching happening right now. And we put our son to sleep. We sat there and we're like, why don't we just talk about some of our favorite Christmas movies? Let's do a Christmas movie bonus episode where we just sit here, we mention a few Christmas movies that really mean a lot to us, why they mean what they mean, and then we talk about it in a more ad-lib, off-the-cuff style. And this way, you, dear Midnight Myth listeners, get a bonus Christmas episode. That's right, friends. You're getting a Christmas bonus. And while this may not be as exciting as a surprise check from your employer, we do hope that you will be excited to see it in your feeds so near to Christmas 2022. Yeah, we just put Arthur to bed and we were in the midst of watching Arthur Christmas, which we thought he would enjoy because there's a character named Arthur who saves Christmas in that story. And uh, he was absolutely obsessed with it. We're going to finish it tomorrow because we had to go to bed. But yeah, he has been, this has been such an amazing year because last year he was just about to turn one. So he kind of got what was going on at Christmas time. And now he's got all of these words. He has so much more cognitive function than he had before. And it is really fun to watch him really get into the spirit of Christmas time. He knows who Santa Claus is. He knows what a Christmas tree is. And he just really enjoys getting into the rituals with us. It's amazing to see someone 
put themselves in Christmas and then also absorb so much of your Christmas ritual and tradition. And that's kind of the coolest thing about having a family and watching you know, our kid be a little bit of you and me and put a little bit of our traditions together going forward. And that got our juices thinking to say, what makes a great Christmas movie? What are the ingredients that need to be there in order for it to be Christmassy, in order for it to become a Christmas classic? And we started thinking, well, what if we took three different sort of avenues into the Christmas movie, which would be one, the Christmas comedy, two, the Christmas horror movie, and then three, the sort of family feel-good Christmas movie. And if we could talk about a few movies that fit into those loose molds, if that could help us kind of understand more what it makes to make a great Christmas movie. So here, without further ado, is the Derek and Laurel bonus episode we're going to talk about some of our favorite Christmas movies. We're going to talk about things that we love about them and how they became classics under the idea to understand what makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. Hey, especially at Christmas time, at this festive season of the year, whatever you celebrate, we want to hear from you. So if you want to get in touch, Hit us up. We're on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And you can drop us a line there on the contact form. We would just absolutely love to hear from you. The very best thing that you can do for the podcast is to leave us a five-star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you listen, and spread the word. Tell people that you enjoy this podcast and help us get out there. I would also encourage you to head over to my podcast, Sleep and Sorcery. If you have trouble sleeping or you like cool fantasy storytelling, I am doing a series of festive episodes for the season. So you'll get a winter solstice episode, a Christmas Eve episode, and a New Year's episode in the next couple of weeks. So check out Sleep and Sorcery on YouTube, Insight Timer, and wherever you can find podcasts. Other than that, I think uh, off to the races, right, Derek? All right, on with the show. Here's how it's going to work. We, Laurel and I, are going to both talk about a particular Christmas movie within a subgenre of Christmas, which we're, is going to be comedy, horror, and family feel-good movies. And we're going to just sort of talk about our relationship to that media, things that we got from it, things that we can pull from it that make it Christmassy, and then hopefully at the end here, we might be able to summarize the philosophy of the Christmas movie and to maybe come up with an idea or a structure or a way by which we can organize the Christmas movie debate. Because if you've opened up Twitter, social media, wherever people are talking about movies, there's always a debate about what's the best Christmas movie, what makes a Christmas movie, and we're going to put the Derek and Laurel Midnight Myth lens on that. Absolutely. If you're a fan of Christmas rom-coms, I'm so sorry to say you're not going to find much here. We're not going to talk about Hallmark movies and we're not going to talk about love, actually. But maybe you and I can talk offline. Hit us up where I told you before. And largely because I haven't seen any of them. That's fair. Let's start with the Christmas comedy. This is a Christmas movie 
that is abound with Christmas iconography, abound with Christmas themes such as family, but things tend to go goofy. These are the movies that make us want to laugh at Christmas. It's no secret that Christmas can sometimes be a stressful time. So the Christmas comedy to me represents the release valve of all of the stressful elements of Christmas energy, all of the things that make Christmas a challenging time. And it allows us to kind of relax and laugh about that, which is why to me, there's no better Christmas comedy than National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I like it simply because it is expressing the realistic challenges and concerns and pressures on the family that occur during Christmas time and then turns them all into a goof. And it makes us laugh about it. Oh, you think you're getting a Christmas bonus? You're not. Laugh. Oh, you've got family members showing up uninvited, pushing their problems onto you. You get to laugh. You've got both sides of the in-laws coming in and they don't get along. You get to laugh. You've got the neighbors that don't like Christmas. It takes every Christmas symbol from the Christmas light to the Christmas tree to the overzealous father wanting his Christmas to be perfect so much so that he has a near mental breakdown and it turns all of Christmas, all of the things that we hold dear about Christmas, and it turns every single one of them into a joke, which is why every year I watch it and I just crack up. To me, there's no better symbol of the Christmas movie comedy than that. There's also so much that it mines from the fact that the holidays can be naturally really stressful for people. The family obligations, the financial risk that you go into when you have to put on a good Christmas for people or a good holiday for people, and the like tensions that naturally exist around this time of year. Not to mention, it's really cold, it's really dark, everybody's a little bit sad, and then you have to put on a happy face and throw a party and go on a vacation. So I think it naturally pulls from the fact that a lot of us feel heightened anxiety and heightened tension around this time of year and then gives a release valve for that and is like, hey, maybe you're really stressed about having to buy really expensive plane tickets plus putting all your Christmas presents on a credit card and that sucks. How about I make you laugh about it? And that can be a really helpful stress relieving activity at this really stressful time of year. Yes, let's do everything to have the perfect Christmas tree and there's a squirrel in it. Who's going to attack grandma? Yes, of course. That to me is like the creme de la creme of Christmas comedies. And I think it's for that exact reason that you stated. You now, especially now as a parent, I understand Clark Griswold so much better than I ever did. Yeah. I used to just laugh at him because he's silly. He's Chevy Chase. He's a comedy genius. I know he's not a very nice man off the set, but he still makes me laugh when I see him in things. And now as a dad, I totally get that. You want your family to have the perfect Christmas. And he's constantly painting the positive spin on things. His desire to go so extra and so overboard is always putting the family into tension. But at the end of it, he just wants to be a dad that has a perfect Christmas. And he goes so overboard and so crazy that he ends up ruining everything. And I'm like, 
oh man, I can totally do that. I want the perfect vacation. Like I could see that happening to me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it gets into a pretty universal space, which I think is, you know, and, and we're probably going to wrap about this later, but I think that is something that belongs in a Christmas movie, right? Universality of some kind, whether that's laughing at someone's misfortune around the stress of the holidays or, you know, having this heartwarming moment where the family comes together. The universal aspect of it, I think, is really important. What is your Christmas comedy? Well, I wanted to bring to the table, and we just did an extensive episode on it, but I wanted to bring in Elf, so one that is a little bit more recent and has a slightly different flavor on the Christmas comedy. This is a funny one because I could have put it in the final category, right? The family feel-good category, and it certainly falls in both in, in varying ways, but once you put Will Ferrell in the lead role of your movie, you're pretty much declaring to the world, this is a comedy. I want you to laugh. And a similar example, of course, is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the live action version with Jim Carrey, because you're taking this really classic universal story of heartwarming, finding the meaning of Christmas, and popping a comedy legend into the lead role and letting them kind of milk it for all the laughs that it's worth. So I'm bringing Elf to the table. It's a little bit the polar opposite of Christmas Vacation in some ways. And at the same time, they kind of go hand in hand, right? They're both Saturday Night Live alumni who lead these movies. And one has a slightly more cynical, satirical take on Christmas. And one, as we talked about last week, has not a drop of cynicism within it. And I think the Christmas comedy can be very effective whether it takes one side or the other. So that's why I really wanted to contrast the two because the comedy of Elf is mined from the absolutely mind-blowingly wholesome personality of Buddy the Elf versus the totally unwholesome world that he steps into and how he turns that world wholesome with him. The contrast just of putting... Will Ferrell, an SNL guy who has starred in more like adult roles and has been a more vulgar comedian than you would have expected in a kid's Christmas movie. Sorry if you can hear our cat yowling in the background. He apparently disagrees with me. But yeah, that comedy is mined from the contrast of wholesomeness and um, the more cynical elements of these characters and from the incongruity of Will Ferrell being this unbelievably wholesome character because we've seen him be a completely different kind of comedian before. So it finds the comedy in something that is not inherently funny, right? And somehow that makes it even funnier because it just makes you feel so good. There's one thing they share in common. Both Clark and Buddy believe in the sincere goodness of Christmas and want Christmas to be this good and pure thing, despite the overwhelming evidence around them that no one else cares as much of them. And at the end, everyone around them cares a little bit more about Christmas than they did in the beginning. Now, in the case of Buddy the Elf, it's extraordinarily the transformation the other characters go through. Yeah, he makes people believe in Santa Claus, who literally were taking books away from children in nunneries. But Clark does get his boss to give him the Christmas bonus, 
at the end of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And so people do believe a little more in the spirit of Christmas uh, based off of the actions of these two characters who both sincerely believe in Christmas when everything around them says it's not that nice, it's not that great, it doesn't really matter. And I think there's comedy in both. Yeah. So with that in mind, and keeping also in mind that these are just two examples out of a really huge pool that we could have uh, grabbed from, some of the things that we found in common between them that are essential to their meaning and to their success as Christmas movies are sincerity, for one. They both feature sincere characters, even if they're in a cynical world, and belief, and this idea that Christmas has an, an air of belief and faith to it, whether you have it at the beginning and you impart it to others, or you don't have it at the beginning and you gain it. Let us turn our gaze to the next category, if you will. Yeah, let's do it. Now, not everything in Christmas always works out. Not everything in life always works out. And from Charles Dickinson, Dickinson? Charles Emily Dickinson. I mean, Charles Dickens, from the moment he penned A Christmas Carol, there's always been an element of spookiness to modern Christmas. And if we go back to Christmas's ancient roots, there's always an element of paganism to it and reconciling some of the forces that people see outside of their control and trying to control them through Christmas. And that is that in winter, the world is cold, it is dark, there is scarcity of food, there is scarcity of resources. So let's create a holiday to help overcome and appease the gods in this dark time of the year. And with that, there's been a element of horror in the Christmas movie genre. So I'd like to turn our gaze to the Christmas movie horror movie. I love it. And of late, I feel like there's a little bit of, of a renaissance. We're seeing this more and more. We're seeing more people celebrate Christmas movies in a horror sense. And I'd like us to kind of pick apart some Christmas horror movies. And I want to ask Laurel, what would be your creme de la creme of Christmas horror movies? Well, first of all, I just love the way that you introduced that because you could have said that like the Christmas horror movie is this transgressive response to like the saccharine sweetness of Christmas. But in fact, it has always been a part of Christmas. Christmas is totally spooky. Christmas is hot take as spooky as Halloween, in my opinion. But if I'm going to pull out a Christmas horror movie that I really love, it's 2015's Krampus. I love this movie. It's also low-key a comedy. So there is this comedy aspect of it and this satire and this just totally balls out crazy silliness of it, but it's still scary. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's based in the Alpine folklore of Krampus, who is a companion of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, and he comes around to punish naughty children rather than give them rewards. And usually he does that by spiriting children away into his bag and taking them to hell and or possibly eating them. He's usually depicted as like a big hairy goat man with goat legs and like a big old tongue. We have a Krampus on top of our tree. 
and we read Arthur Goodnight Krampus every Christmas. So we have some love for Krampus in our household, but the movie Krampus follows a family and it's it starts out quite similar to Christmas Vacation in some ways. It brings the uh, extended family together and exposes all of the tension and all of the malcontentment between them and mines a lot of comedy and drama out of them. But then of course it becomes a fantasy horror when the monstrous figure from Alpine folklore comes and starts to terrorize this neighborhood and particularly this family. It's scary because it has this kind of slasher element to it that is also full of this pagan, ancient feeling folklore. It's got some really interesting production design that's very scary, but then it also just goes very uncanny in some ways where it has Christmas toys come to life or it has the gingerbread cookies come to life and start attacking with these big gnashing teeth. And it's really silly when you think about it, but it kind of works as horror too. And then at the, at the end of the day, it is also a story about a family finding a way to be together and to love each other and hold each other at Christmas again. After they have been at each other's throats and they haven't been able to relate, it's about them reconnecting through this traumatic and terrifying ordeal of dealing with this pagan folklore figure. Yeah. When you say Alpine folklore, could you flesh that out, what that means? Alpine meaning of the Alps. So it's mostly, he's mostly from Austria and Germany. Ah, so it's Krampus. Yeah, Gruß von Krampus. Greetings from Krampus. Gruß von Krampus. So it's a German demon. That would be the Germans to invent the anti-Santa Claus. Anti-Santa. Oh, yeah. Well, there's tons of these uh, similar figures like Krampus. There's Black Peter. There's Connect Ruprecht. These, like, dark, shadowy figures that accompany Santa Claus or accompany St. Nicholas, and they dole out the punishments. Whereas here in America, we have Santa himself doles out punishments. It's just pretty tame. He gives you coal if you're on the naughty list. Yeah, and these days there's not a lot of coal, so if you have coal, you could probably sell it to like Joe Manchin, the senator of West Virginia, and make Absolutely. a ton of money. Coal is a hot commodity. But yeah, what I love about Krampus, aside from like the the fun comedy and the family drama that that spins the characters through this story, is that it's like, let's pull some horror out of the kind of ancient pagan folkloric roots of this holiday. Because if you look closely at any aspect of this holiday, you can find something spooky. And that is the most natural thing in the world. That's the most Christmassy thing in the world. Yeah, and in so many storytelling motifs, be them mythological or modern commercial, there is an aspect of duality. One force meets an opposing force. And the myth of Santa having this myth of Krampus happening as the shadow version, as you called it, which I think is really well said, I think goes very neatly with our contemporary ideas of what it means to have a myth and have a story and to tell stories. It makes sense if there is this mythical force in the universe delivering presence that there'd be this mythical force in the universe dulling out pain as a counterbalance to that. And I think that's one of the things I like the most about just the Krumpus myth, how it's kind of become resurgent, largely because of the 2015 movie, 
and how people talk about Krumpus as the anti-Santa, there is a little transgressiveness to it in a modern sense. You know, we like Krumpus because to us, it's just like, yeah, we could put an angel on the top of our tree, but we put a Krampus. Yeah, we put a demon up there. Yeah, so, you know, aha, we're so subversive. But there's an element of that that I think is present in there, but I think that could only be there because it draws from the ancient traditions and the sort of spookiness. Absolutely. Would you like to share your Christmas horror submission? Absolutely. To me, there's only one great Christmas horror movie. That is Gremlins. All right. A movie that would be worthy of the entire Midnight Myth treatment. I'll just say drawing on our conversation that we just had about Buddy the Elf in our regular episode, these idea that there can be these small mischievous creatures that are sometimes good, sometimes bad, can't really be counted on. And the idea of having the inverse of the Santa Claus in the Krampus, well, what is the inverse of Santa's elves if not the gremlins? The Gremlins is a movie about a family trying to get a gift to their son, about the son growing up in the world, about facing responsibilities, and about this small, idyllic American town, the perfect time of year being turned upside down by the anti-elf, the Gremlin, who runs amok and takes over the entire community. And it has a little bit of action in it. It is scary. It is weird. There's a comedy at the end of the day. It is also about the sadness that can exist at Christmas, that Christmas is not always a time of joy and happiness. Many people feel sad. It is one of the highest times of suicides um, because people can feel lonely and isolated during this time. And all of these things exist in this modern retelling of a Christmas story where it's not the Christmas elves that come and put things together, yet it's the Christmas gremlin who comes and tears everything apart. I was always drawn to the pure chaos of it. I saw the movie very young because back in the 80s, that was a kid's movie. Yeah, but there's a scene where the char- the the girl character, I haven't seen in a long time, but the girl character is talking about what happened to her father, and she goes, and that's when I learned there was no Santa Claus. And I was I remember I knew that I knew the truth about Santa, but I was watching with my sister who was younger than me, and she didn't know, and I was like, Stop listening. That's not true. She's lying. This movie's lying to you. But that was a kid's movie. How crazy is that? It's an absolutely bonkers thing. It's a kid's movie, and I had a gizmo stuffed animal who was my best friend that I nicknamed Gizzy. And I used to write stories about adventures. Gizzy and I would go on like Gizzy and I go to the candy store. Gizzy and I go to the circus. And I wrote all these stories about me and Gizzy and the adventures that we would have. That is so pure. Oh yeah. But I saw the movie that young that I had my little toy gremlin And so Gremlins is a movie that I think a lot of us have seen, and it is a very powerful movie because it takes, similar to Krampus, a lot of the standard Christmas tropes 
and does their dark inverse. It says, what if they weren't joyful? What if they were horrorful? What if they didn't bring peace, but they brought violence? What if they didn't bring togetherness, but they brought separateness? What if something as innocent as getting a pet for your kid turns into an entire town being taken over by little tiny monsters? There's also something to be said of the practical effects and the puppetry of that movie that's so amazingly well done that holds up incredibly well. And for me, there's, if I'm gonna go Christmas horror movie, to me, Gremlins is the number one. Yeah, excellent. This is making me want to watch Gremlins again because it's been a really long time. And maybe we should do it for our Christmas special next year. Practical effects in Krampus, also amazing. The puppetry and the production design that they use in there. The other similarity that I'm noticing is that both Krampus and Gremlins are morality tales in a way. They derive their horror and they derive their inciting incidents from rule-breaking, from characters who do not follow the very clearly set strictures and thus they are punished. And that, again, it comes from this idea of Christmas and St. Nicholas and Santa Claus being either a giver of gifts or a dealer of punishment. And that is a really interesting thing, that both of those movies dig into this deep Christmas mythos of rules and morality being quite black and white. Well, our son was throwing a temper tantrum. I don't remember what it was, but we were drawing a hard line and Laurel looks at him and goes, you'll go on the naughty list. And my son just pauses and like realizes that he got stumped. So doesn't immediately behave better, but stops crying, stamps his feet and frowns. And Laurel goes, Santa is watching. And he turns and then he smiles and goes, sorry. Right. Like it, it gets instilled young. I'm still a little bit like, oh, did I do the right thing there? But at least, you know, we're, we're still debating the elf on the shelf whole, the whole uh, debacle. But it is a really interesting tool that parents have been given throughout the centuries. Well, it's true that they're, especially to the mind of a very young child, teaching right from wrong is often in the most simplistic terms, rewards and punishments. And knowing that Santa, the ultimate reward is there and saying, hey, that reward is contingent upon you learning right from wrong, following the rules, behaving like not a toddler, which is another way to say behaving not like Sonic the Hedgehog possessed by a demon. By a gremlin, yeah. You know, it, but just behaving in a normal, neat, and like rational way. I say rational way. There's nothing rational about a two-year-old, but you get my meaning. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Everyone, hopefully everyone out there listening gets my meaning. And that Santa Claus is a way, the myth of Santa Claus, and conversely, the myth of Krampus and the gremlins, is a way to start teaching morality, but at its most fundamental, simple, and most basic level. If you follow the rules and do good things, you get rewards. If you break the rules, you get punished. Yeah, so an interesting confluence there of these these morality tales. Uh, and, you know, that's the biggest thing that stuck out to me as similarities there. You also mentioned turning these ancient mythic rites of Christmas on their head and bringing out their shadow. 
So those are interesting kinds of through lines when it comes to Christmas horror stories. Absolutely. Let us turn to our last category then. Yes. These are the, oh, Christmas movies. The ones that are heartwarming. Um, the ones that make us feel special. These to me are the most Christmassy of Christmas movies. These are movies where someone sat down and said, how do I make people feel good about the holidays? How do I make them feel the quote-unquote Christmas spirit? These are the movies that you watch with your family every single year, and they make you feel like you're sitting in a warm blanket with hot cocoa around the Christmas tree. What is your feel-good family Christmas movie? I gotta go Muppet Christmas Carol. As far as feature-length Christmas movies go, because I have some like very special favorites that are TV specials, but as far as feature-length Christmas movies go, this is it for me. This takes the cake. It is a comedy. It's a little bit of a horror because it's a Christmas Carol, and Christmas Carol is a ghost story. But at the end of the day, this is a movie that makes you feel good about mankind and Muppet kind. It is a truly faithful adaptation of the novel. And I say that as someone who has read it a few times and just read it in full for Sleep and Sorcery on my Patreon if you want to fall asleep to my dulcet tones and the ghost of Christmas past. And it, it truly gets to the spirit of it. It gets to all the humor of Dickens and his narration and the way that he tells this story and all of the deeply sincere and also terrifying aspects of the holiday. It does so in the full musical and visual splendor of the holiday. Just the table of the ghost of Christmas present that is overladen with you know, meat and fruits and greenery and candles and just shows you in all this ripeness and all this beauty what Christmas, this very impermanent, very short, but very special time of year is. Uh, the songs that say things like everywhere, um, wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. And, um, you know, God bless us, everyone. These, these truly universal, beautiful and tender, vulnerable expressions of the abiding capacity for human love. I mean, that's what Christmas is about to me. It's not it's not even a religious thing to me. It is about the, the capacity, the human capacity, how capacious we are for love and for faithfulness towards each other. However, a movie like that does take some of the more compassionate and the more beautiful elements in particular of the New Testament and puts them into a story it takes the best of the morality of Christianity and it puts them into a story that can be told to people in very, it, it is absolutely a Christian story. 100%. In its Christmasness. And that I don't say as a detriment, but as a positive, because it looks at the greatest aspects of what it could mean to be a moral Christian Victorian human or Muppet, and how to live to the best parts of their values. These are not the like fire and brimstone preachers 
telling you that um, if you're a homosexual, you'll be punished in hell for eternity. Nay, it is the Christian values of, hey, you, you've done well, you should give to others. Yeah, and you, then these these like wild ideas that like people who are poor or who are needy deserve to get blessings and deserve to get charity just because they are human beings and or Muppets. Like that is such a radical idea that like it doesn't have to all be on merit. You just deserve love and kindness and compassion just because you're on this earth. Well, I've seen so many adaptations of A Christmas Carol um, and this would be the first adaptation that I've seen and I saw the Muppet Christmas Carol before I read the book, The Christmas Carol. And this was the first time I heard Scrooge say, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, won't some people die before they go to the prisons or the poorhouses? He says, well, you know, better to decrease the surplus population, which is the most unchristian thing to say. And then when Scrooge meets Tiny Tim... And he sees that though Tiny Tim doesn't make money, though Tiny Tim isn't out there loaning to people, Tiny Tim's not part of the British economic machine. He is blown away by his inherent worth that he goes to the ghost of Christmas present and says, you know, what's going to happen? And, you know, the ghost of Christmas present throws his words. Well, if he's going to die, let's decrease the surplus population. And that's like the most painful thing to Scrooge is hearing the things he said hours before. Which, you know, is about the fundamental dignity and respect that all people have, which is a central point of Jesus's message in the New Testament, often lost among some of the more evangelical and fundamental Practicers, practicers of Christianity, pardon me, but is central to the Christmas narrative that everybody is worthwhile and that everybody deserves equal opportunity and access to health and humanity and charity and love. And because we are all capable of this rich, poor, uh, frog, human, you know, no matter what, that, that, and I think that is something that is integral in the Christmas classics that really stick with us. Yeah. The ones that really move us. And they are and they are based upon Christian ideals, in particular New Testament Christian ideals. And I would argue the best of those ideals put into a narrative that inspire us to want to do good works for others. Yeah. You know, not to be missed, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention how the irreverence of the Muppets somehow still elevates Michael Caine's completely sincere performance as Scrooge. He dedicates himself to showing the full range of human emotion and human progress as this most wretched of characters who becomes this saint-like figure, and he's up against Gonzo the Great, and he's up against Rizzo the Rat, and he's up against Kermit and Miss Piggy, and all of these wonderful, ridiculous Muppet characters. And somehow that contrast, again, we've talked about contrast before, how much richness you can mine in these Christmas stories from putting one thing right next to something that is very, very different from it and finding out how funny 
how scary and how moving that can be. I also just want to give a shout out if you want to learn more about how that movie was made, the history and legacy of that movie. Our friend M at Verbal Diorama just did a Christmas episode on the Muppet Christmas Carol, which was one of M's best episodes. We plugged M before, but I really enjoyed learning how that movie was made, learning about its history and its legacy. It was a fascinating episode. I mean, I'm probably going to have to drop a link to her episode on Krampus too, if we're at it, because that's also a fantastic one. So lots of love for M in this episode. Done and done. Um, can we go to mine? Yeah. We've done an entire Midnight Myth on my family-oriented Christmas movie, so we won't spend too much time talking about it. But to me, there's only one, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. It is, isn't it? Very similar, inspired by Christianity and New Testament Christian modern thinking. And it is a story about the fundamental worth and dignity of people, not about how successful you are in your career or your business, but ultimately that your success is about how many lives you have helped, how many people you have touched, and how those people love you in return. You know, the thing that I love the most about It's a Wonderful Life is that at the end of the movie, all George did was avert one other crisis. His uncle loses a few thousand dollars because um, Mr. Potter steals it. He's about to go to jail for fraud. The community comes and bails him out, but that doesn't mean he has a successful business tomorrow. It means he just survived one other battle. But in that survival, he learned his worth to others. He learned how much he mattered because he always put others ahead of himself. And something that I think is really hard for all of us currently living in a time that encourages narcissism, a time that encourages selfishness, a time that encourages greed, a movie like It's a Wonderful Life reminds us it's never been about you. It's always been about the people you can help and the lives that you can touch along the way. And that, to me, is why it is the best. I love everything about that movie. I think it is one of my favorite movies of all time and easily my favorite Christmas movie. It's just timeless, too. There is no part of... I mean, I'm, I might eat my words when we watch it again this year. I don't think there's anything about it that doesn't hold up. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but it, it truly, it gets to, again, a universality and a message that anyone at any time in their life can relate to in some way, right? Everyone has felt alone. Everyone has felt undervalued. Everyone has felt like they dropped the ball and they might never be able to dig out of this particular predicament. And what this movie says is somebody's got you. And you can be forgiven for your mistakes. And what you put out in the world will come back to you. And that is a really powerful message for any time of year, but especially at this time of the year when a lot of people are facing 
are facing struggles, are facing mental health struggles, are facing financial struggles. It, it really is just something that speaks to that, that kind of state of mind. It has that emphasis on the family, the unit being extremely important, and then the extended family and the uh, community as part of a, a wider family unit, right? George is a character who has great ambitions and wants to see the world, and he ends up never leaving Bedford Falls, but Bedford Falls becomes the world to him and thinks the world of him. That's freaking magical. And it's also worth noting, Clarence, the angel, does not fix George's problems. Right. All he does is remind George that his life was worth living. That's it. He still has to go face his problems the next day. Yes, this big Hail Mary comes in, and it, it, George lives to fight another day, you know? But it's never going to be easy. You're always going to have to work, and you're always going to have to find the value uh, in order to, to survive this life, you know? And Mr. Potters are going to be there trying to squeeze you, take you, and, and have you consumed with greed and cynicism, and they're going to try to destroy your financial well-being. That problem doesn't go away for George Bailey. But what he realizes now is despite his life not being what he wanted or what he imagined, it's still worthwhile because he has family and friends. Yeah, he's loved. And to me, that is why it's the ultimate Christmas movie, because it hits the spirit of Christmas theme better than anything. Obviously, when you have a brilliant actor like James Stewart, that's going to help. It's going to make it easier because his performance is phenomenal. And I think similar to um, A Christmas Carol is that these are, to me, like the ultimate Christmas stories because they secularize the religious. They orient things to and towards the family. They make it about charity and goodwill. I think there's, there's something I need to get off my chest. Okay. And it may ruffle some feathers, but I don't think movies like Die Hard and Batman Returns should be considered Christmas movies, at least in a classic sense. And let me explain why I feel that way. I think that we have, especially us millennials online talking about movies, I think we've conflated a few things. And one, I think we've conflated Christmas ritual with Christmas theme. If something is part of your Christmas ritual, it's part of your Christmas ritual. In fact, anyone can have a Christmas ritual. That is something that an individual, a family, a subculture, a culture, they do collectively at Christmas. Putting up a Christmas tree, Christmas ritual. A hanging of Christmas lights, Christmas ritual. Your family could watch the same movie or listen to the same album. That's your Christmas ritual. So your Christmas ritual may be watching something that is not what I would call thematically Christmas. So if my ritual is that I eat Chinese food and watch Captain America Civil War on Christmas, those are my Christmas rituals. But Chinese food and Captain America Civil War are not thematically about Christmas. Hence, Captain America Civil War 
isn't a Christmas movie, even if it's something that I do at Christmas. It's my Christmas ritual. Meanwhile, there are things that are thematically about Christmas. These are not about the actions that you do in and around Christmas, but these are things that tell the story of Christmas. I think the easiest example of this that I think we all kind of understand is in music. There is a genre called Christmas music, and no one confuses that with any other genre. For example, if I woke up every morning on Christmas morning and I put on Nirvana Nevermind while I opened my presents, that'd be my Christmas ritual. But Nirvana Nevermind would never be a Christmas album. Conversely, if I am at 4th of July putting on Mariah Carey Christmas, I am still listening to a Christmas album, even though it's my 4th of July ritual. And I think we have conflated these things, and I think it we have made it too easy for something to become a Christmas movie. I think if the standard is, it's a Christmas movie because I say so, what you are saying is, it is thus because I say thus. And no one has that power philosophically in any regard ever. Something isn't true because you say it to be true. You must back its truthfulness with reason, evidence, and argument. And I think we've become too cavalier with calling things Christmas movies and conflating those with Christmas rituals. So if a movie happens to occur at Christmas and you happen to watch it during Christmas, I don't know if it makes it a Christmas movie. So I've come up with seven criteria that I think need to be present in a Christmas movie. And I'm going to say this not exhaustively, meaning this isn't universally true of all Christmas media, and you don't have to have all seven present, but I think you do need to have at least four of the seven there. Or some meaningful combination of a few of them. To make it Christmas thematically. Again, you can call something part of your Christmas ritual, and that's fine. You can also say, and this is a philosophically valid argument, all art is subjective, there are no rules, I as an individual can make them up as I go along. Yes, anarchy. You can say that. That's postmodernism. You can say that. But I don't think most of us who are saying Batman Returns is a Christmas movie are saying that. I don't think we're saying there are no rules and anyone can say whatever they want. I think people are saying, I want to squeeze these things into my Christmas ritual so I call them Christmas movies. But I think reality is just like, hey, watch what you want to watch at Christmas. But let's all admit there are certain things that make a Christmas movie a Christmas movie. So number one on the list, and these are not in order of importance. These are just in order of how I thought of them. Is it must be family oriented. Um, it's got to be about the family, even if it's not a movie you'd watch with your yeah, whole family. Yeah, even if it's like, not like intended for all ages. Like Krampus is not intended for Arthur, but it still is about the family. Got it. At some level, you need the myth of Santa Claus involved. 
the theme of charity and goodwill towards all humans, the birth of Jesus, it happens during the Christmas season, that's important, and a focus on the collective over the individual, meaning that it is not about one individual's greatness, but people as a whole being great. So if it is uh, something that's thematically about and Randian objectivism and how great one person is and how bad society is, inherently I kick that out of Christmas. But if it's about how good we can all be if we come together, then there's a Christmas theme. And then lastly, the giving of gifts. At some point, people need to exchange presents at Christmas. And to me, these are these seven... And now, they're like the movies we've talked about tonight, I think other than the last two, uh, actually, no, there's no Santa Claus in A Christmas Carol, is there? No, there is yeah. a char- there is the Ghost of Christmas present who is similar to the Father Christmas figure, but he is more like a pagan uh, Odin-like character. Yeah, so I, even then, so A Christmas Carol doesn't really have the myth of Santa Claus there. So you don't need to have all of them, but I thought it'd be useful to say, let us parcel out the movies that are Christmas adjacent to those that are more true Christmas movies and give people the room to say, have whatever Christmas rituals you want. If my Christmas ritual is that I watch WrestleMania from 1988, because I VHS'd that, and I watch that from 1988 every Christmas, there's still no Christmas themes in it, though I could do it at Christmas and make it my Christmas ritual. What about watching football at Christmas? There is nothing wrong with that. It's amazing. We're going to do that this year. Yeah, I'm excited. But football is not a Christmas game. Right. There's nothing Christmas about the game. We're going to do it traditionally... NBA basketball is the sport that's on during the Christmas holiday. Yeah. That is traditionally how it, how it happens. Usually the um, Christmas holiday falls in a weekday. This year it falls on a weekend, so there will be NFL. But that doesn't mean the NFL and Christmas are one. So, And we're only doing it this one year, so it's not like that's a ritual. Yeah. No, I like your criteria. I think the meaningful combination of like two to three or more is important because an example would be like the life of Brian is marginally about the birth of Jesus, right? Or the birth of Brian who lived next door. And that is not a Christmas movie because there's nothing Christmassy about it. Christmas was not established until about 300 years after the supposed birth of Christ. So I I think that helps me kind of figure out what's Christmas adjacent and what is actually Christmas. The thing that I might add to it after our conversation tonight uh, and thinking about the the through line through all of the movies that we brought up, again, a very small sampling of just three genres, three subgenres, is that element of belief, is that element of faith. I think that's something we talked about heavily on our Elf episode last week, and that is important. That's something you get in Gremlins, That's something you get in Krampus. That is something you get in the Santa Claus. That's a really big theme there. That's something you get in Miracle on 34th Street, in It's a Wonderful Life, in White Christmas even. 
there's this idea of uh, summoning summoning some belief in something bigger, whether that is Santa Claus or the magic of this season or the good faith and good charity of mankind. And similarly, Die Hard is set during the festive season, but all the other themes are completely absent. And because all of the other themes are completely absent, we can't say just because the plot happens at Christmas, that equals a Christmas movie. It's an action movie. It's arguably the greatest action movie ever made. It happens to be set at Christmas. You may watch it every Christmas. And that's amazing. I like to watch it every Christmas too. I don't watch it every Christmas, but I would like to. But calling it a Christmas movie to me is um, thematically inaccurate. I think it could be ritualistically accurate, but I don't think there's a lot of Christmas theme because when the catchphrase is yippee-ki-yay, mother effer, not a lot of Christmas in that, you know, versus the other movies that we have talked about this evening. You don't think that... The Terrorism is a Christmas theme. <laughs> they're not terrorists, they're thieves. <laughs> yes, this is true. Um, then again, if you completely disagree with me, that's totally okay. Just recognize that you are full in on postmodernist interpretation of film. Nothing wrong with that. I just happen to not take that lens. All right, join me, postmodernites, and we will arrive at Derek's door with pitchforks and torches. Wait, and that's my, <laughs> also my door. We live together. And Krampuses. And Krampuses, of course. I, no, honestly, I, I recognize that this is just a argument. I'm not saying this is the universal truth that everyone should abide by. Certainly there's room for debate. It is art, and it is subjective largely to a degree. So I welcome other voices and ideas. Awesome. This has been really fun. I am... Definitely in the mood to watch another Christmas movie right now. Like, I'm feeling very festive. I want to end just with some some fun Christmas would-you-rather. So, Derek, would you rather have Christmas every single day for a year or only have Christmas once every five years? I mean, that's easy. Once every five years. I am the exact opposite. Christmas every day. No, you cannot. I could not deal with that. I would, I would break down. I wish it could be Christmas every day. I'd have to give my entire family a present every day for a year. No, I couldn't deal with that. The world would just go into a recession and we'd all get bailed out. It would be fine because everybody would have to do Christmas every day. That's just my opinion. Anyway, until next time, be kind.